from Fox News. It's the campaign with Brett Baer. News broke early Friday morning that the president had tested positive for COVID-19. Though the president is said to be in stable, good condition with mild symptoms, the messaging from the White House seemed muddled at times over the weekend. Meanwhile, former Vice President Biden has been campaigning in Michigan uh, following the news of the president's diagnosis, also going to Florida, though his campaign has begun pulling negative political ads. All of this with the election less than a month away from today and the vice presidential debate between Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence two days away. We'll start there with our panel Political editor at the National Journal, Josh Krashauer, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, and Fox News politics editor, Chris Steierwald. All right, Chris, um, obviously this is a big wrench in what has been a topsy-turvy kind of news environment, but it really hasn't changed much so far in this election as we look at at polls. Will this, the president getting out of Walter Reed, going back to the White House, and eventually, the Trump campaign says, back to the campaign trail, change the dynamics, do you think? Well, it's it seems like the debate last week did change the trajectory of the race. Uh, we see from the Wall Street Journal poll and we see from New York Times polling in the key battlegrounds of Florida and Pennsylvania, a growing advantage for Biden coming out of the debate. Then you get the coronavirus. And I argued Friday that this presented an opportunity for Trump, right, to refocus, reset. It could change the narrative of the race. Uh, Certainly a commander in chief who is ill uh, can be the subject of sympathy um, and all of that stuff. You know, it's it's too soon to say definitively, but, you know, five days later, it doesn't seem like they've capitalized or found a way to capitalize on those things. And instead, it may may have the opposite effect. Josh, does it change the issue of covid? Does it does covid become more of an issue? Uh, Does the president, do you think, talk about it differently now, having been through this? How does it change that issue? Well, there's some signs that the president understands the gravity of the situation, given his personal experience with the current uh, battle with COVID. He said this week that, you know, you can read books, but you can also different when you actually experience the illness yourself. But, you know, I'm skeptical that his overall messaging on the pandemic is going to fundamentally change. And it is his weakest uh, subject. I mean, if you look at the polls, they all show that there's a majority of Americans that are skeptical of his handling of the coronavirus. And I, and I really don't think his experience with this uh, himself is going to dramatically change those numbers. I, I do think that it'll be interesting to see um, how the pandemic, how the illness of uh, several senators on the Judiciary Committee will affect the confirmation battle for, for Judge Amy Coney Barrett, because that once seemed like safe space politically for Republicans. It seemed like it was an issue where they could change the topic and talk about jurisprudence instead of uh, the pandemic. But now those two issues are almost intertwined together in a way that could prevent Republicans and prevent the president from gaining any political momentum in the final spectrum. Well, in fact, Tom, I mean, he's tweeting out that he's leaving Walter Reed Medical Center feeling good. He says, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We've developed under the Trump administration some really great things and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. 
I mean, this is a Trump tweet there I'm quoting from. <laughs> uh, obviously, steroids make you feel pretty good for a time being, I suppose. Um, but w- what about that? I mean, that messaging suggests, you know, this is not about shutting the country down. We can get through this. But it's not really a hat tip to the 209,000 people who died. Right. Well, this is this is sort of classic Trump. And if you are online, which is where a lot of the political pundit class is, but but not where the country is, uh, you saw the typical reactions. I mean, liberals were apoplectic over this, saying, oh, this is, you know, it's going to get people killed and Trump hasn't learned his lesson. Meanwhile, Trump supporters were like cheering him for saying essentially that he's, you know, that he's back and 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 not to they approve of the message that we shouldn't let the virus dominate our lives. We shouldn't be shutting the country down and keeping kids at, at home. Not to say we shouldn't be taking precautions or whatever, but that's what they take away from that message. So I'm not sure that I'm not sure that message is going to change anybody's mind. It'll reinforce what everybody already thinks about the president and his attitude toward the coronavirus. But again, you know, going back to the question you asked, Chris, how is the general public absorbing and digesting what has happened? Uh, over the last you know four or five days, it's been pretty dramatic. We don't know the answer to that yet. We will find out, uh, I think, in the in the coming days and weeks, as as he the president you know gets back to some sort of regular schedule, either in the White House or if he starts you know doing other things. So, and it could be, I, I don't know that it's going to fundamentally change the dynamic of this race, but there could be some some changes on the margin. I was just looking at his his job approval on the coronavirus rating on on Real Clear Politics. It's actually. At 42.5%, which is not great, but it's better than it has been since the end of June. So he's seen a little bit of uptick on that just in recent days. And we'll have to see whether that's just a, a, a blip or whether it's a you know the beginning of a, a, a larger trend. Yeah. So did the diagnosis and what we've seen over the past few days, Chris, take some of the sting out of what a lot of people thought was a not a great performance or at least a tonal miss on the president's part in the debate well i mean it it stepped on the story uh but again it's the stories about coronavirus which as josh pointed out is the one story that republicans really do not want at the forefront this cycle so tom's right it'll it will take time to see how how the rabbit goes through the python this time but here's what i know in 2016 donald trump was crazy lucky he was crazy lucky. And I was thinking about how he was talking about how Hillary Clinton was sick. She's not well. She's sick. She's sick. She's sick. And then she stumbles and, and almost falls getting into her van after the September 11th ceremony. And then her campaign admits, uh, yeah, she's got pneumonia. We didn't want to say anything. So we lied about her health. And this time around, it's Trump. Uh, He's the unlucky one this cycle. And after three very lucky years of his presidency where he got away with a lot of stuff, right? And the Democrats were frustrated in their efforts to pursue him and impeach him and all of that stuff. In this election year, it has been, the the Greeks put the, the word agonistes after a person's name to describe the person who is struggling. And it has been Trump agonistes all year. And this seems like it's part of that. If we can get Greek into this podcast, (laughs) that's a really positive thing. Um, Josh, you know, that said, the markets uh, on news that the president was getting out of Walter Reed, or at least that seemed to be what the trigger was, uh, jumped a bunch. Where do we think that this race is? If it was held today, everybody on this panel thinks that Joe Biden would win. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's fair to say. 
It's not held today. It's held in less than a month. What are the dynamics that can change this one month from now? Well, as Don Rumsfeld said, there's always some some known unknowns. What we don't know. What we know, <laughs> we know. Unknown, what we don't, we don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I mean, how the president handles getting back into the White House and whether he takes the coronavirus more seriously within the White House, I think, is going to go a long way into shaping the public perception of, of the final few weeks of, of the election. Frankly, how Republicans you know, handle the Supreme Court hearing, whether they try to rush it through, even if they're senators that are sick uh, and, and, and could be risking a public health issue in the Senate hearings or, or wait a week to try to care for the, the best public health considerations. I think that'll go a long way. Um, you know, the reality is, is that uh, the president is often his worst enemy. I mean, he, he, he I thought the message he sent over the weekend, sort of an optimistic um, message showing that, you know, he's taking it seriously and, and it's, and it's, you know, it's something that, 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 that he learned from was a positive one, but then he, he went in that, the ride with a secret service agent. And there's a lot of criticism that he sort of, you know, hasn't maybe internalized the lessons that he, he talked about. So, I mean, I think the president could make some lemonade out of lemons if he shows some change, if he shows some, some, some of the things he learned about during his, uh, hospital stay, but, you know, I think there's a lot of risk that he's going to go back to his old habits, and that's what scares Republicans the most. Yeah, Tom, as far as the Senate Judiciary, uh, Mitch McConnell on Friday told me it's full steam ahead, um, and he doesn't care how many people are on that uh, committee that that are experiencing COVID issues. Uh, they're going to move forward, and if they have to start the hearing with people uh, coming in virtually, they'll do that. And Ron Johnson says he's going to come in in a hazmat suit to vote if he has to. So um, this seems like it's going forward, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And and while the Democrats are trying to, you know, Chuck Schumer was saying the other day, we can't do this. This is, you know, we've, we've got to slow this thing down. Republicans have no intention of slowing it down. And they, they're they going to do whatever they have to do to get that vote taken and done. If I could just go back to the race for a second. I mean, it is interesting you know, if you look at our real clear politics average, Biden's lead in the, nationally has ballooned just since the the first debate from six to uh, about eight and a half percent now. So he's and he's well ahead, about three, almost three and a half points ahead of where Hillary Clinton was at this point in the race. He's also got a four point lead on average in the top six battleground states, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin. That is actually not as good as Hillary Clinton at this point. It's Trump was actually is half a percentage point better. Um, and the leads in Biden's lead in North Carolina is 1.2, his lead in Florida is 2, his lead in Arizona is 3.4. It wouldn't take much of a shift to actually, you know, move those states back into Trump territory. The problem he has is he's he's trailing by over five percentage points in all three of those upper Midwestern states. He doesn't seem to be making any ground, despite the fact that that both campaigns have been pouring resources into Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, Biden's been in Michigan. They're pouring resources into Michigan. And right now, at least the polling in those states looks pretty solid for, for Biden. But again, you know, he Trump did overperform in Wisconsin by, I think, seven over seven points in 2016. So it's it's not out of the question that we have some sort of repeat uh, of 2016. Yeah. So let's say Trump overperforms in those battleground states three to five. Is that enough currently to get him over the finish line on the Electoral College? Uh, well, his lead in Wisconsin is five and a half. It's 5.2 in Michigan and it's six and a half in Pennsylvania. So no. you say three to five, 
he would lose all three of those states. If he holds on to Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina, he only has to win one of those upper three Midwestern states to win the presidency. Um, but right now, if you know, unless he ever performs by more than five, he would lose. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. The polls post-debate have not been good. I mean, the Siena New York Times poll, there was one poll today that had Biden up four in North Carolina. That was the best poll that was out post-debate, up four in North Carolina. Well, I I was going to say, if Trump won every poll in which he is trailing within the margin of error, Mm -hmm. uh, if he won every state where he is trailing within the margin of error, he would still lose the election. Yeah. So, so that was my point is th- if you know, they all broke, if every state and that's not what happened in 2016, but if every state broke at the maximum at the outside of the margin of error for Trump, then he would still lose. And, the re- you know, the hard reality for Republicans. So for the Trump campaign, what are you going to do? Right. You're going to burn your ships and and try to lay, lay siege to the city because there's no going back. That's what you're going to do. And maybe things change. Maybe they don't. Now, Republicans have to start making some other considerations about the Senate. And that obviously was part of the decision making on Amy Coney Barrett and how to proceed on that. Um, but for Republicans. Facing the reality that they it is just as likely or about as likely that Biden would win a 35 state, a huge romp, right, like a nine or 10 point victory. That's a, from a probability standpoint, about as likely as Trump winning. Given those realities, the Senate Republicans, and especially facing a tough map in 2022, uh, as the retirement of Pat Toomey reflects, Republicans staring all that in the eye, saving the Senate starts to become more urgent work for the GOP. Right. So let's talk about that, Josh. Um, As it stands now, there are a number of vulnerable Republicans. There are a number of Republicans that are on the cusp, and there are some long shots for Democrats that they could still pull out. Yeah, I mean, the Senate is still salvageable for Mitch McConnell, and he knows that, but he's also looking anxiously at these latest poll numbers, which don't bode well for his ability to hold the majority. And, and the, the biggest risk for McConnell, I think, isn't just the fact that, you know, some of the, the most endangered senators like a Martha McTally or even a Susan Collins end up losing in, in tough races. It's that the bottom falls out, and you have polls that both Democrats and Republicans are seeing. It's like Kansas, Texas. South Carolina with Lindsey Graham, uh, even Alaska, where, you know, the polls are Republicans are leading, but the polls are uncomfortably tight in states we shouldn't even be talking about. And what that I mean, that, that, that wouldn't just be a, a wave. That would be a tsunami election that would allow Democrats to do all kinds of progressive uh, legislation and uh, actions if they, if they end up, uh, you know, winning that kind of majority. So, you know, for McConnell, it's not just about kind of salvaging these tough races. It's worrying that the, the bottom, if, 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 if the tide doesn't kind of come in a little bit, worrying that, that those races could come into play at the very end. Yeah, I guess I look at some of these races in the past that we thought were going to be super close and never were. McConnell's past challengers, uh, the Beto O'Rourke challenge to Ted Cruz, you know, was the focus and the polls had it like neck and neck. And then we get to Election Day and suddenly it's eight, ten points. Not um, for Cruz, it wasn't. No, no, it wasn't for Cruz, but for McConnell it was. It was, I mean, they were pouring money in there, the Democrats were, and they're doing it again. Maybe not as much this time because they they realize McConnell is now now up. But I wonder if the Lindsey Graham thing is as emergency as as the polls suggest. What do you guys think? 
Well, if I uh, it, it, the bigger worry isn't that they lose a lot of those seats. I, I think it's whether they end up spending money having to move valuable resources. And and it does look like Democrats are starting to outspend Republicans, not just at the presidential level. There's a lot of outside money coming in to help save these Republican senators, but Democrats have just raised money like like there's no tomorrow. And the worry is that, you know, you're, you're spending money that you want to spend to save the Senate in North Carolina, and you're going to have to spend it on, you know, Alaska or South Carolina. Like we're seeing. Is there a voter out there, Tom, that is um, that is a ticket splitter that realizes, hey, I'm I just don't like President Trump. I'm not liking the way it's heading. I can handle Joe Biden, but I can't handle Joe Biden with all of the levers of power together. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. There's there's not a lot of ticket splitting that goes on uh, in the country anymore. You know, during presidential years, especially. I mean, 2016 was the first year we we that every single state voted the same way for president and, and senate. There was not a state that voted one way, you know, for president and and for the other party for senate. But the problem, quite frankly, if you go through and look at these races, is that these Republican Senate candidates they're actually running behind Trump in the state. Uh, you look at, you know, Martha McSally, she's running three or four points behind where Trump is. Uh, you know, Tom Tillis, same thing. Joni Ernst, same thing. Although Tom Tillis's situation may change. Well, <laughs> yeah, we can get to that one in a second because uh, that one's just gone crazy. But, uh, you know, there's there, there are. So Mitch McConnell's problem is isn't so much that Donald Trump is a drag on the ticket in these states at least not right now, according to polling, it's that the candidates themselves, you've got people who are Trump supporters, it looks like, but aren't going to vote for some of these Senate candidates or are going to maybe, maybe there's a, you know, there's a Trump Mark Kelly voters in in Arizona, as unlikely as that may seem. But Republicans need, their Senate candidates need to do better in the polls than they're currently doing. They are running, uh, you know, as I said, a few points behind President Trump in a lot of these key races. All right. So get to the Tom Tillis uh, Cunningham race. Well, it's coronavirus versus adultery is the, uh, you know, Tom that, that time-tested te- uh, battle. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we've got, you know, Tom Tillis tested positive uh, for coronavirus and is now self-quarantining. And then you've got uh, Cal Cunningham, who had been leading in all the polls. Um, and as Josh said, raised just an unbelievable amount of money, $28 million, I think, in the last uh, the last session. And, and you know, was hit by this, admitted that he had been sexting this strategist from California to make matters worse. Cal Cunningham had been running on his record as a veteran. This woman is married to a veteran. And then there was another report out by the same reporter that broke that original story, suggesting that there is perhaps another woman that was involved with with Cal Cunningham. So things may actually get worse for him. And it's- Well, at least at home. Yep. Yeah, well, I mean, not only at home. I mean, the, the the Charlotte Observer, the front page of the Charlotte Observer, plastered his texts all over uh, the front page of the newspaper there. It's hard to imagine a bigger nightmare scenario for a Senate candidate just a, four weeks before an election. Yeah. Cal Cunningham is not Bill Clinton. I mean, he's, he's um, I think that could affect that race, Chris Starwell. You know, it's going to be interesting to see in the Trump era because – for all the Democrats' assumptions that all of the allegations against Trump would do real damage, it didn't. Uh, I don't know. North Carolina is a, a politically weird state. They've only reelected two U.S. senators from since 1972. Tillis was, uh, as, you know, 
Tom pointed out Tillis's problem. Tillis's problem is he's underperforming Trump, but he's underperforming Trump. And by the way, Ernst is one of the candidates who has not been underperforming Trump. Uh, she, until recently, was uh, doing substantially better than him. It seems like the Republicans are in trouble generally in Iowa. But Tillis was struggling because he was not living up to Trump's numbers in rural counties and in in places like in eastern North Carolina. He wasn't as doing as well as Trump there, but he was missing out on a lot of affluent suburbanites in places like Nash County outside of Raleigh, where we it's a, a Republican breadbasket and he's been underperforming there. Whether this can turn it around for him, I don't know. I do know that him when you have a race where, as you said, that that age old debate, <laughs> coronavirus <laughs> versus or sexting, <laughs> you choose. I don't know. It's it's a. Uh, uh, North Carolina has been unfortunate to have a, a lot of awful races in succession. And uh, at the wire, they're delivering another. All right. Down the row here, 100 bucks of chips, the presidential race and control of the Senate. Josh? Um, I'd give, uh, I guess, 80, 85 bucks to, to Biden, 15 for Trump in the presidential. Yeah, I think the Senate's much closer just because there's some there's some variables that are still yet to be determined, namely the, namely the Supreme Court hearing. I, I'd go uh, 55 Democrats, 45 Republicans. All right, Tom. I would say, I think, I, I think, are we talking about if the election were held today or tomorrow? No, no, you're, I'm you're saying forecasting. November 3rd. I'm for, yeah. Okay, so I, I think this race is going to tighten. I think the polls are going to get tighter over the last couple of weeks. I just feel that even though the race has been pretty stable over time, um, I just feel like the country is is so divided so I'm going to say I'll go 65 Biden, 35 Trump. And I would do, I think whoever wins on election day is going to have a good night and, and pull most of these senators uh, across the line. So I, I'd have to say, you know, 65, 35 for, for Democrats or 60, 40. Wow. All right. Chris Darwell. I'd say it's 75 on Biden for the president um, and for the Senate. You know, I just it never works out the way you want. And the idea that basically Democrats will run the table and win each of the seats that they need to win seems a little far fetched to me. Um, so I'm going to say 55 GOP control, 45 Dems take over. Yeah, that's a bad table for Republicans that we just watched there, that that uh, betting table. <laughs> um, well, so hold on, Chris. You think Joe Biden is going to win the presidency and Republicans are going to hold on to the Senate? I think that's certainly I think that I think Biden is more likely Biden. to win the presidency by a, a wide margin over by a wide margin of probability over Trump. But when I look at the four seats. Right. So I go Montana, Iowa, Maine and uh, North Carolina. And I look at those seats, assuming that the Republicans are starting minus a net minus one because they've lost Colorado and Arizona, but one in Alabama. So they got to get three of the four. Do they get Montana? Do they get Iowa? I'm not so sure. Uh, and I think Collins is a goner. But I just any anytime somebody's got to really draw to that inside straight, I'm I'm skeptical. Betting more betting. All right, uh, <laughs> gentlemen, thank you very much. Here's a bit of uh, campaign trivia. The Saturday Night Massacre occurred on Saturday, October 
1973. It was on that day that President Richard Nixon ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox, the person appointed to investigate the break-in at Watergate. Uh, the complex for which Nixon's operatives were implicated. Richardson refused and resigned. Then President Nixon ordered Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus to fire Cox, which Ruckelshaus also refused and resigned. It was only then that Nixon brought in this request to the Solicitor General and future Supreme Court nominee Robert Bork that he found a member of his administration willing to fire the special prosecutor. Interesting stuff. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Josh and Tom and Chris, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time.